You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we have Gregory LeBlanc, who is a lecturer and distinguished teaching fellow at the Haas Business School at the University of California, Berkeley. He teaches primarily in the areas of finance and strategy in the MBA and Masters of Finance Engineering programs and in executive education. His research interests lie at the intersection of law, finance, psychology, and in the areas of business strategy and risk management. In this episode, we talk about what areas of finance will be affected by artificial intelligence, what is behavioral in trade in, and how will machines impact this, what is the future for MBA programs, fintech school, and the key players in fintech. So stay tuned for an amazing episode. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Gregory, thank you for taking the time today to be on Silicon Valley. Now, you're the founder of Berkeley FinTech Institute, a distinguished teacher fellow at UC Berkeley, Haas School of Business. You have this amazing background. What led you to become so fascinated with financial technology? Well, actually, it goes as far back as my graduate studies. I actually worked on a PhD in financial history, which sounds kind of esoteric, but it really was about how markets and institutions evolve over time. Historically, then you're in a good position to kind of look at how they evolve over time and in real time and you know, have pretty good insight into what are the forces that create innovation and lead to changes in markets and institutions. So then what patterns are you seeing right now from history? They say there's nothing new in history, right? You know, what happens is that the cost of information change or the cost of organization change, you know, obviously technology is always evolving, but as technology changes, it really impacts key variables like cost of transacting, cost of contracting, cost of screening, cost of scoring. Uh, These are things that if you understand those trends and those forces on a larger scale, then it's pretty easy to understand how they happen in real time. So does the introduction of artificial intelligence affect any of these trends or how is that making the playing field now different? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when we talk about artificial intelligence, machine learning, you know, big data, I mean, really what we're talking about is a reduction in information costs, right? We have a reduction in the cost of data capture, reduction in the cost of data storage, reduction in the cost of data analytics, right? And much quicker response time to the information as it comes in. And so finance is really all about information. The entire industry is information. Information economics and financial economics, they overlap to quite a degree. So as you reduce these costs of information, it enables a, a whole bunch of decisions to be made differently. And so machine learning is really you know, just improving on the decision-making that people have been trying to do for decades, for centuries, for millennia. So then how does this affect the different areas in finance? Is there an area of finance that is not affected by, by machine learning? And, and the answer is probably not. I mean, okay, the couches in the waiting room and, and the few remaining uh, branches, you know, may not be uh, affected by machine learning, although I'd probably argue they would. <laughs> you know, they probably can do some studies to find out like the configuration of couches that will optimize, you know, the conversion rate of, of new customers <laughs> waiting in those branches. But really, whether you're talking about lending, whether you're talking about insurance, whether you're talking about brokerage, whether you're talking about asset management, whether you're talking about you know, fund origination, you know, there's really, there's payments. I mean, there's really no aspect of finance that is not affected in a really profound way by artificial intelligence. 
So can we dive deeper into one of those areas? Maybe banks, process automation, how will that be different? You know, every decision is really, as a data scientist, you look at every decision and and you see it either as some kind of classification or some kind of regression, right? You're classifying customers into those that you should lend to and those that you shouldn't lend to, right? Or, you know, those that you should increase interest rates on or reducing interest rates on, or you should solicit be customers or not. And so all of those decisions are improved with access to better information and the ability to analyze that information more effectively and more quickly. The classic problems in lending and insurance, adverse selection and and moral hazard, right, are really fundamentally informational problems. Trying to predict ahead of time, right, who's going to default, trying to predict ahead of time who's going to prepay, let's say, if prepayment is a risk you're worried about, trying to predict who's going to borrow. These are all predictions that can be improved by having uh, more rows and and more columns in your database and by having um, good, solid analytic capabilities. So you'd mentioned making credit decisions. How are banks adjusting that now with the new information? Uh, Well, I think it would be hard to find a financial institution that is not incorporating new kinds of data. Now, obviously the mainstream banks, commercial banks, you know, they're highly regulated. Every lending institution is regulated by the Fair Credit Reporting Act and every bank is regulated by the OCC. And so, you know, there are a lot of features that the banks are restricted from using, like race and ethnicity and national origin and religion and even location. There are a lot of things that they can't look at. But these things that we think of as alternative data are being increasingly introduced into the credit decisions. I mean, in the past, I think banks would more or less coalesce around a single metric like the FICO score. And that's why bankers were widely you know, ridiculed. I mean, there was the whole 363 rule, right? You know, you borrow at three, you lend at six, you're on the golf course by three o'clock. Because, you know, you didn't have to do anything. You just followed a pre-established rule. Maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit. But, you know, now banks are increasingly uh, competing for customers. And I would say that it's not just about identifying credit risk. It's not just about looking at things. I mean, there's some famous examples of lenders that are looking at esoteric data like your battery usage, right? So pretty well known now that some companies will look uh, on your phone at all sorts of things. I mean, there's so much on your phone, like what apps you have on your phone and you know, when do you wake up and when do you go to sleep and where do you go during the daytime? I mean, do you go to the same place every day? Do you go to casinos? Right? I mean, there's so much that you can look at just from sucking phone data for people that have no paper trail. If you're unbanked and you have no employment history that's on paper or you have no credit history or checking history, we can still extract all sorts of features just from your phone. The most famous one is uh, that everyone loves to talk about is if you let your battery drain all the way down to zero, and then you go and recharge it, that is correlated with a lower probability of repaying, right? And other examples are Prosper asks all of the applicants to write a little essay. Give me a loan because I'm broke, right? And you can just do some simple naive Bayes type analytics, just some text analytics on those essays, and it'll alter your lending decision because there are correlations there. Now, of course, Prosper is the only one that has that database. And so they even though any other lender would love to have that, they don't have five to six to seven years of little essays that they can match with the repayments. So yeah, everybody's looking for that special little piece of data and it need not be esoteric. I mean, it can be like, you know, your rent check, right? FICO doesn't look at your rent. Do you pay your rent? Do you pay your rent on time? Do you pay the electricity bill on time? I mean, the FICO score doesn't even include your salary, right? So like, why don't it include your salary when you're making a credit decision? So there's, there's lots of things that have informational value. And, and I would say also that, you know, it's not just credit decisions. It's who do you cross market to? You've got somebody who's a 
checking account customer? Should you market a mortgage to them? The, the fintech startups that are in a pure play space, right? If you're trying to make money by refinancing student loans, okay, you know, you're not going to make it because even if you do it better than anybody else, even if you have the best model, right, you've got more rows and columns than anybody else, customer acquisition costs are so high that you're just never going to be able to monetize it. It's such a competitive thin margin space. I mean, this is why the Wells Fargo's of the world make money. You got somebody in the door for a student loan, you have to say, okay, should I pitch a mortgage to these guys? Should I pitch some uh, investment products to them? I mean, this is how, if you look at Alibaba, right, you look at Ant Financial, you look at WeChat, you know, they're just building out these financial powerhouses, you know, with the financial superstore, right? The financial supermarket, because once you have a customer in the door and you start capturing all this data about them, then you might as well just figure out how to market to them all sorts of other products. And you don't want to just market everybody, everything to everybody, because then they become numb to your ads. So you want to be very careful about how you do your cross marketing. So with all this information, how is there still fraud and anti-money laundering? Shouldn't that have all been eliminated? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really, really good question. So there are a couple of issues here. First of all, I would say that fraud detection algorithms are quite good. Some of the best minds in the business are devoted to fraud detection. And so, you know, there are companies that I think are their basic competitive advantage is, is fraud detection, right? If we look at Visa, for instance, or if we look at PayPal, I mean, what do they really add to the mix at the end of the day? I mean, suppose Libra takes off, right? Why would you need Visa? Why would Visa join the Libra consortium, right? It makes no sense. Isn't it just going to put them out of business? Well, companies like Visa, you can think of them as fraud protection as a service. That's what they're really good at. They are really good at, at detecting fraud. PayPal is really, really good at detecting fraud. Now, you're still going to see plenty of fraud. And that's because fraud is a very low probability event, right? I market mortgages to my customers and, you know, 20% of them respond. Okay. That's actually, a, you know, I can develop a nice rich model. If you know, one out of a million transactions are fraudulent, it's really, really hard to avoid having a gazillion false positives. It's really hard to come up with an accurate model. I mean, even if you flag every single fraudulent event, you're also going to catch in that net a whole bunch of trash fish, right? You're just going to catch a ton of, and so every single person is going to be, if you want to catch every single instance of fraud, then you're pretty much going to be telling every, you know, every traveler is going to find it, their credit card is not going to work. So you have to actually let some fraud through realistically in order to avoid all these false alarms. So that's number one. It's a very low probability event. It's like scoring in soccer, right? Like it's really hard to do analytics on soccer because nobody ever scores. You know, baseball is easier because people actually hit the ball once in a while. The second thing is that it's an arms race. Got really intelligent people who are out there trying to do fraud. And then you got really intelligent people out there trying to stop it. And so it is an arms race. It's a cat and dog game. And so you have to continually be revising your fraud models. And so I remember I've talked to a lot of machine learning people who go from stable environments like you know, voice recognition, and then they go to work at hedge funds, or they work in fraud detection. And they realize that it's a lot harder problem. I recently went out and I spoke at a hedge fund, a quant fund, and they had some of the best machine learning people in the world. You know, voice recognition people, you know, uh, from astronomers looking for stars and whatnot. And they're like, this is crazy. The minute we detect a pattern, it goes away. It disappears. It's like, well, what's going on here? It's like, yeah, voice recognition. People aren't changing the way they talk in order to outsmart Alexa. Like they want Alexa to recognize their voice. Whereas if you're a trader in the financial markets, 
everybody's trying to disrupt. You find a pattern, you start making money on it. Everybody else is making money on it. And then the, the complex adaptive system responds opportunity goes away. So everybody's constantly in motion. Same thing with fraud. The minute you've figured it out, they've moved on to the next thing. And then third thing is that the attack surface is really huge. I mean, imagine that you're defending a city and somebody could break through the city walls with a slingshot. Like, where do you put your defense? You can't defend the entire perimeter. When the cost of destroying something is a tiny fraction of the cost of protecting something, Something's got to give. And there's this not Petya virus. I don't know if this is you know, well known, but this was a virus that the Russians sent out to the Ukraine, basically, to disrupt all the servers in the Ukraine. Any company that was operating in the Ukraine was affected. Maersk, the international shipping company, they had to take a $600 million write-off because they were affected. What did it cost Russia? I don't know, but it probably cost them like 100,000 bucks to come up with this virus. And it cost $100 billion in damage. That's the issue, I think, with things like fraud and, and hacking. We're going to have to invest an enormous amount. And we have to spend a lot more on defense than is being spent on offense. You just mentioned Libra, the Facebook coin, I believe. Can you talk about that? I'm personally very excited about this. You know, in the United States, we're not really super familiar with mobile payments, even though we have all the infrastructure. We have Apple Pay. We have Android Pay. We have Samsung Pay. We have all this stuff. And yet the number one mobile payment system in the U.S. is Starbucks. <laughs> you know, like, this is crazy. It's nuts. But you go to other parts of the world and mobile payment has a lot of penetration. I mean, particularly in China, mobile payment is the norm. Everybody uses mobile payment devices. So one of the reasons why it hasn't penetrated to the U.S. and also hasn't penetrated, frankly, to most of the developing world. You know, in the U.S., we pretty much already have POSs on the merchant side for credit cards. Most people have credit cards. So it's not really a solution to an existing problem. In the developing world, it actually is a real problem because people don't have credit cards. Parts of Africa, you might have 10 to 20% of the population that even has a bank account. Okay, so that's a huge problem. So on the one hand, you've got Ali and Tencent that are trying to make a play into these markets. On the other hand, you have the mobile phone operators like MTN and Vodafone are trying to make a play into this space. And then in comes Facebook and its consortium with Libra. I think this offers a huge, huge satisfies a huge need for these unbanked populations. To a lesser extent, it solves the problem in the U.S. Really, the only way that you could see something like a WeChat pay or a Alipay penetrate, you have to have a head start, right? You have to have, it's a chicken and egg problem. You need receivers and payers. You know, with WhatsApp is really one of the few entities that has the global presence on both the payer and the payee side that would enable like instantaneous adoption. So that's why there's, I think there's a massive, massive potential here or building out a mobile payments ecosystem on the basis of Libra. What do you think Western government's reactions will be to it? <laughs> yeah, we've seen some pushback in the last couple of weeks from U.S. Congress and the regulators and so forth. But you know, at the end of the day, it's not really clear what they can do. It's not clear that they have the capability to really just step in and apply instant regulation. And that's because this is not a bank. And so the, the banking regulation doesn't apply. There's talk that it might be considered a security. So CFTC has suggested that it might be a security. And that's really interesting because if it was a simple stable coin that was backed by the US dollar, then it would not really be a security because the SEC has already come out and said that if something has general utility as a medium of exchange, 
then it will not like like Bitcoin, it will not be considered a security, but because it has a basket, it's kind of like a derivative, right? And the CFTC regulates these baskets. So CFTC is kind of exploring stepping into the mix. There's also some tax issues that we might have to think about because it's not linked to the dollar, but to a basket of currency, then it will fluctuate in value relative to the dollar. And so there could be some tax consequences. But at the end of the day, it's really just a contractual relationship that they have with the customer might actually be the FTC that is in charge of, of, of regulating this thing. There is a lot of uncertainty around it. And you know, if the politicians really wanted to kind of mess with it, they could. But at the end of the day, I don't think that the US is the market where there's the biggest opportunity here. I really think that the biggest opportunity is in, in the emerging markets. And from the perspective of the emerging markets, yeah, they're probably interested in regulating it. But when you compare the solution that people are currently using, which is cash, which is completely invisible to these governments. It's not taxable, it's not auditable, it's completely invisible. This actually offers the possibility of more visibility, depending on how it's implemented. Then all these transactions will be auditable. There'll be, you know, there's AML protections. For those governments in West Africa, I think they'll look at this and say, you know, this is not replacing the regulated financial transactions that we have in the banks. This is replacing the already unregulated, invisible transactions that happen through cash. And so I think they'll actually be very permissive in terms of their regulation. My forecast, right? Be wrong. I'm wrong more often than I'm right, but that's definitely worth the gamble. With that being said, and maybe the government's actually encouraging this, could it almost be seen as a monopoly with currency? Well, I mean, obviously it will be competing with other mediums of exchange. So in that sense, I don't think it would be seen as a monopoly. Now, if it gets rapid adoption, then yes, could start to dominate small and medium business. But at the end of the day, you know, in China, you've got WeChat Pay and Alipay, and they're, they're more or less like a duopoly, right? But the competition keeps them in check, I think. The other thing is that this Libra platform is open. Anybody can build out applications on it the way it's set up. The Calibra wallet that Facebook is offering is only one of, you know, any number of wallets that could be built out on this platform. That's number one. And then number two, the idea is that this is going to be a consortium and they already have 28 nodes and they're talking about having a hundred nodes. So Facebook will not have any kind of control over validation of these transactions. And Facebook won't have any visibility into the transactions that occur outside of the Calibra wallet. So I think it was actually built to bake in some competition precisely so that it would avoid any accusations of, of monopoly. Now, of course, if all the transactions happen within Calibra, then it will be seen as a monopoly. But look, Facebook doesn't have any competitors in social media, but it will have plenty of competitors in the world of transaction media. Going back to trading, algorithms right now, how are they impacting the financial markets? Look, whenever I see a human trader, I'm actually kind of surprised, like seeing somebody, you know, show up in the 7-Eleven on a horse because, you know, human trading is really going the way of the dinosaur. There's already more algorithmic and bot trading going on now than human trading. And when we would think of program trading in the past, you know, a lot of it was just automated rebalancing. And so a lot of the stuff that the robo-advisors are doing is just automated rebalancing. And then, you know, a lot of the hedge funds are also be, you know, you, you stake out a position, you have a whole bunch of automatic rebalancing, keep your you know, portfolio in check. Okay. But, you know, we also have these active algorithmic traders that are just continually looking for alpha, just constantly searching for alpha. 
And then, you know, the high frequency traders, like all they're doing is just trying to create liquidity, right? Trying to anticipate trades and facilitate trades and so forth. So I think it's already at the point where most of the trading is being done through some kind of algorithm. On the bigger, more philosophical question is, does all of this automation of trading kind of create more liquidity or less liquidity? Does it create more stability or less stability? The answer is it depends. And it really does depend on the composition of algorithms, the ecosystem of algorithms. This is one of the more fascinating areas of finance. And it dovetails a lot with you know, biology and other complex adaptive systems. Because if I have a bunch of momentum traders, let's say, you know, when something goes up, you buy it. Right? And then you've got a bunch of contrarian traders. Whenever something goes up, you sell it. Well, if I'm trying to forecast what's going to happen after a price movement or an informational signal, I need to know how many momentum traders are out there and how many contrarian traders are out there. And my choice of whether to become one or the other is going to depend on what I think the ecosystem looks like. And so you can have these systems either reinforcing each other or kind of counterbalancing each other. Now, of course, this was true when humans were doing the same thing. So we saw bubbles. I mean, no one's going to say that bubbles are a new thing. I mean, and that algorithms are going to lead to bigger bubbles. Can't get any bigger than, you know, tulip bubble or tulip bubble or dot-com bubble and so forth. But I think that things will happen a lot faster. So the flash crashes can occur in the blink of an eye. Whereas with the humans, there was like a delay. And that can either be, you know, better or for worse. So online, I watched a video that you did on behavior and trade. Wouldn't that be completely eliminated if it went all to robots? That's a really good question because I think that, well, on two levels. On the main level, which has to do with correlation of trading behavior, which leads to bubbles, you know, algorithms do the same thing. I mean, humans make decisions using algorithms. Okay, let's be clear. It's not like algorithms are replacing non-algorithms. Humans use algorithms. So, you know, when a human says, when the stock price goes up, I buy it. Okay, and we replace that carbon-based algorithm with a silicon-based algorithm that says exactly the same thing. When the stock goes up, buy it. You get the same results. So behavior is not going to be eliminated because behavior is just algorithms. And then humans adapt and humans adjust and algorithms adapt and algorithms adjust. I teach a course called Behavioral Finance. The course is really about complex systems. It's really about feedback loops. It's about information and how information is disseminated and how information impacts activity in the markets. And that activity could be done by humans or it could be done by robots. It really doesn't matter. And so I think what we call behavioral economics is just as relevant now, even though all the decisions are being made by robots. We just have to understand robot behavior right? instead, of, instead of human behavior. Now, at the retail level, okay, this is where I spend a lot of time with financial advisors. And the financial advisors, you know, they say, oh, these robo-advisors, they'll never put us out of work. They'll never put us out of work because... Humans like to talk to a human. They really like to talk to a human. And only a human can talk someone off the cliff when they're about to sell everything in 2008, right? Kind of like in medicine. We're like, oh, well, doctors, we can just redirect the doctors to holding people's hands. When they get diagnosed with cancer, nobody wants to be diagnosed by a robot, right? Maybe the robot diagnoses them, but then you got the human that carefully explains them and tells them, you know, hey, don't worry or whatever. I used to believe this. And I used to think that this was plausible, that you would have this human interface and then everything would happen behind the scenes using robots. But the more I look into the way financial advisors operate, they don't really have much business providing advice to humans. They're almost as irrational as the humans themselves, right? It's like the doctor who comes in, smokes a pack of cigarettes and says, you know, 
you got cancer, right? So I actually think that even on the robo-advisor space, we're going to see more and more, even that hand-holding thing is going to be done more and more by robots, right? I mean, there's actually... There's actually some robo therapists and they've been determined to be, you know, equally effective as, as humans, right? So, you know, you just, you got a chat bot and you say, Hey, you know, or, you know, there'll be some things on Alexa. We say, Alexa, I'm feeling pretty sad. And Alexa will be like, Oh, well, you know, like tell me about your childhood. Right. And, you know, psychologists use algorithms in their own head. I mean, I'm being a little facetious here. I, I do think that obviously the human empathic capability will never be replaced for a lot of things that the humans are replicatable. So what do you think most of these humans, these day traders and that, what do you think their next goal or path will take them then? Creativity and strategic thinking. The machine learning still has a ways to go. When I talk to those folks out in the hedge fund, we're having trouble understanding why their pattern recognition skills didn't work. They had to start thinking a little more strategically. They had to put themselves in the minds of the other traders and they had to really use a little bit of game theory and think in a little more complex level about what's going on. Now, look, Big Blue has shown us that computers can think strategically, but that's, a, that's in a finite choice space. It's a finite set of rules. Well, pretty huge choice space, right? But you know, computers now can teach each other how to play Go just by playing against themselves. Computers can think strategically, but financial markets are unbounded. Financial markets have lots of different things going on, including lots of human traders that are still involved. Humans still set monetary policy. Humans still elect other humans to make decisions that impact the real economy. And signals, because the world is changing and innovating, you know, historical data doesn't, doesn't always help because things are not stable. I'm going to let a robot evaluate Uber when it goes IPO. I've had a lot of students who have tried to come up with machine learning models that will help you as a venture capitalist. Okay. And there are a couple of venture capital firms that are using, you know, algorithms to try and evaluate teams and business ideas. And I say good luck to that. Machine learning works on stable patterns with good historical data. And when we're dealing with innovation and the financial markets in the U.S. are all about innovation, I really don't think that there's no machine learning model known to man that would tell you buy Amazon stock in 1996. It's not going to tell you because there's nothing to compare it to. There's no training data that would give you a good score on Amazon or on Facebook or on Tesla or on Uber. And so humans are always going to play a huge role in finance, in my view. So you had mentioned that you had several MBA students try to use financial modeling to predict Uber. What do you think is the future for MBA programs? That's a question that might get me in trouble. I have a colleague who says that if you want to learn how to run a 19th century railroad, go get an MBA. (laughs) So I got to stick up for the MBA a little bit because that's how I make my living. Obviously, there are some MBA programs that are better than others, and, and I'm not going to flog mine, but I think uh, ours is among the better. That said, you know, MBA programs are, they're in crisis. I mean, a lot of lower ranked MBA programs are losing students and they're, they're losing money. And part of that is because, you know, the curriculum is not adapting. Now, look, MBA's programs bring you, you've got the network, you've got the branding, and you've got the curriculum, and the network and the branding is always going to be powerful. But if the curriculum doesn't change, then these programs will, will go obsolete. You look at a financial engineering program, for instance. Berkeley, our financial engineering program was historically all about pricing derivatives, pricing finance, complex financial instruments. And then after the financial crisis, the recruiters told us, they said, we want data scientists. We want people to understand data, understand how to find patterns in data. Okay. And so we had to change our curriculum substantially. You know, in the mainstream MBA program, same thing. Students want to have the ability to communicate with technical people, 
particularly here in the Bay Area. And if you're an MBA, you don't have just some baseline understanding of how to manage teams of engineers and how to recruit engineers and how to talk to engineers. There are some people that say, oh, I just need to go and learn Python. I think that's actually wrong. I mean, that's not what MBAs are for. MBAs are supposed to be PhDs in common sense. They're supposed to be generalists. They're supposed to know not how to program in Python, not how to do the accounting on some complex financial transaction, not understand the legal ramifications of different SPVs and so forth, but to understand the relevance of that, understand how to put the pieces together, to understand how to create organizations that can exploit opportunities that are available in the marketplace. So the main changes I think that that MBA programs have to offer are understanding how to manage technology, understanding a bit about how that technology works, what are the limitations and possibilities of that technology, whether we're talking about machine learning and artificial intelligence, you know, whether we're talking about Internet of Things, whether we're talking about things like distributed ledgers, you need to know a bit about that. The other thing I would say is that the way in which companies are organized is completely different. We talk a lot about the composable enterprise and building around APIs. And part of this is technical. Part of it really is organizational. It's about how do you make decisions more quickly? How do you organize people into smaller teams? How do you go out and source the data that you need? How do you interface with, with other entities in ecosystem? How do you build out a platform type business model with multiple sides of customers? So these are things that MBAs are uniquely, I think, suited to understand better than the technical people. So if they try to become second-rate technical people, that's not enough. It's not going to work. Be first-rate business people, but that means understanding how business has changed and also being able to anticipate how business is going to change. And mainly because you cannot, in today's world, acquire any kind of expertise and expect that expertise to be useful 18 months later. If you go to medical school and learn medicine and then you know, expect to coast on that knowledge for 40 years, it's not going to work. So you have to focus on being adaptable, being flexible, being able to learn. You have to install a really robust operating system so that as new apps come on board, they they seamlessly integrate with this operating system that you've installed. That's what MBA programs need to focus on. Who are the big players right now globally in fintech? Is it banks or is it someone else? Prior to the financial crisis, the banks were top recruiters at most MBA programs. I mean, I went to Wharton and when I was in school, you got a job at Goldman, you know, you're set for life. You go to, go to Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, like everyone knew the big banks, big investment banks. And then there were some boutiques, right? Wasserstein, Perella, and like these guys, everybody knew who they were. That was true even up through the years before the financial crisis, even though the tech companies, Googles and the Amazons were starting to heavily recruit the same type of students. But people still, if you went into finance, you, you know, you knew what you were doing. BlackRock was starting to get big. Those people who were still interested in, in finance, fintech kind of became something that was interesting to them. And for me, I was encouraging students to pursue fintech careers because most of the fintechs were actually started by engineers. And the engineers had very little knowledge of how finance worked. And so if you had enough background in finance, plus a little bit of technical expertise, it could really add a lot of value. And I think that's what we've seen you know, in the last couple of years is that the top people in, in fintech they're much more balanced now between the people with business backgrounds and people with technical backgrounds. So the major players, of course, it's a combination. I remember when I would go to Finnovate and these other conferences back in 13, 14 and so forth, everyone got up and said, 
we're going to kill the banks. We're going to crush the banks. We're going to destroy the banks. We're going to make the banks useless. We're going to make the banks obsolete. Not going to happen. Okay. You know, this is, banking is the most regulated industry in the world. Like it is more regulated than education. It's more regulated than healthcare. It is essentially an extension of the state. I mean, it is so regulated, particularly after Dodd-Frank and you know, everything else. So the banks aren't going to go away anytime soon. It's more realistic to think about how fintechs and banks can work together. And so whether it's a fintech that's sitting on the back end of a bank that's providing them with better IT stack or providing them with better customer experience or whatever, you know, that's a huge opportunity or doing things that are completely different from banking. But if you look at, for instance, robo-advising, we saw Betterment, we saw a personal capital, saw Wealthfront. Now, how much market share do they have at the end of the day? Nothing. Combined, it makes up like 1% of assets under management. And yet, robo-advising is huge. So I think that although banks are pretty slow, a lot of large financial players are, you know, they have enough runway that they can start absorbing and adopting a lot of these new technologies. You know, that said, of course, I still believe that Facebook, Amazon, those guys are, you know, have a lot of potential. A great example is PayPal. When PayPal was created, the idea was, hey, we don't need banks. We don't need Visa. We don't need MasterCard. We don't need, we don't need anybody, right? We, we, we're PayPal. And we're a closed loop system. Everybody can open a PayPal wallet. Everybody can pay everybody peer-to-peer with PayPal. It's just forget about everybody else. And I was not taking them to the promised land. That just wasn't working out because people didn't see the value proposition. Why would I do this? What I have works okay. There's no reason to do this. And so PayPal made a strategic shift where they essentially became an API company where they said, all right, well, we're going to play ball with all these people. We're going to partner with, with Visa. We're going to partner with MasterCard. We're going to partner with the banks. We're going to partner with vendors. To, so we're going to say to the vendors, you know, hey, use us and you can accept Visa. You can accept MasterCard. You can accept anything you want. We'll, we'll provide this white label solution for you on the back end to make your life easier. And now PayPal, I think, is doing great. Now PayPal is joining the, the Libra consortium. You might think it's suicide, but it's actually an extension of that strategy of working together as part of this, this ecosystem. I often hear about blockchain. What are the basics of it and will this have an impact in the financial industry? Yes, it will have a massive impact in the financial industry, although in not in ways that most people will recognize. Okay, so I like to say if for some reason the water that came out of your faucet was going through copper pipes one day and the next day was going through PVC pipes, you'd never know. Or, you know, went from the Hetch Hetchy to, you know, some other place, you'd never know. Because all that plumbing is invisible to the typical person. If you look at the way in which you buy and sell stocks right now, you look at your account, you look at the prices and you click on it, boom, you bought some shares. What most typical share owners don't realize is that there's this enormous machinery behind the scenes that employs millions of people. You know, you've got the brokers, you've got the exchanges, you've got the clearinghouses got the custodians, got the transfer agents. You've got all these entities. A lot of them are companies that you've never heard of. You know, when you look at international money transactions, you know, that money wind up going through like four layers of correspondent banking for that money to get from you to someone in China or whatever. But you don't know that. You just push a button and something happens. All of that, I think, is going to be disrupted. All of the, the back office stuff. And that's going to be because of distributed ledgers. Look, we could quibble about how much of this is blockchain, how much is not blockchain. I think the most exciting stuff that's happening as a result of this new attention to blockchain is really a new attention to 
databases and how databases are organized, and how information is is shared across different institutions. And I would say that you know a lot of the stuff, a lot of the hype around blockchain is misallocated because many of the things that people say blockchain can do can be done through a really good API architecture without the need for any of the extra baggage of blockchain-like validation. But nonetheless, whether, whether it's blockchain or distributed ledger technology or just like better API architecture, you know, like through open banking, we're going to see radical disruption of the core infrastructure that sits behind most of the financial transactions in the world. If you look at something like derivatives, the notional principle of all the derivatives outstanding in the world is about $800 trillion which is eight times global GNP or something like this. I mean, I'm not sure what the number is. And most people have no clue. They don't even know this stuff is happening. It's like interest rate swaps, currency swaps and stuff like that. Now, the infrastructure for that is actually pretty primitive. Until Dodd-Frank, I mean, most of this stuff was over the counter. The reason why Lehman Brothers was such a disaster is because of the massive amount of over-the-counter derivatives that they had, all these different counterparties. It all had to be taken apart and it took they're still working on it. I mean, it's like 11 years later and they're still trying to disentangle all these different relationships. Not only relationships between Lehman Brothers and counterparties, but relationships between different parts of Lehman Brothers. You know, Lehman Brothers had like, I don't know, 200 subs and then a gazillion SPVs. And it's just, I mean, it's chaos. And, and, and I think the legal bill right now is sitting at $71 billion, all going to bankruptcy lawyers. <laughs> Being a bankruptcy lawyer is a nice gig. You know, you, profit at the expense of all these poor, miserable people. It's, it's really kind of, kind of nice, um, nice job. And, you know, people will always be going bankrupt, so you're never going to be out of work. But like, that's crazy to me. And I think that we have a lot of opportunities for us to kind of reorganize how we store our data that will create greater transparency, lower latency in, in financial transactions. And this is actually going to be helpful for regulators because regulators will have better ability to see into what's, what's out there. So yes, it's going to have massive impact, but in our everyday lives, we're not even going to notice, except that everything will be you know, more liquid and it'll be less costly to engage in all these activities. What's the future for international money transfers, how businesses from countries are going to be communicating? Well, I think you asked the right question, which is you know, business to business money transfers. I know when blockchain came out, a lot of people were hyping the uh, lower costs associated with remittances, peer-to-peer money transfers. You know, remittances, if you are socially aware, remittances are something, they're a big pain point. You're a migrant worker in an Arab world or in Southern Africa or, you know, even in the United States, getting money back to your relatives, it's fairly expensive. At the end of the day, it eats into your pocketbook. But at the end of the day, that's not really a big enough problem to warrant a huge amount of investment. Because in the few markets where we have, the bigger the markets like U.S. to Mexico, U.S. to Philippines, that the fees are not that great. Things like transfer wise, like that problem is being solved. Not a big deal. Furthermore, it's actually kind of problematic because people still have to spend money in their own currency. They can't spend these cryptocurrencies, at least now until Facebook, you know, Libra might actually help a lot with that. The amount of money that's transferred peer to peer is tiny compared to the amount of money that's transferred from large enterprises to other large enterprises, or even small enterprises to, you know, large enterprises across national boundaries. Problem with that is, I mean, it's the same problem that you have with peer-to-peer, is that, you know, nobody's moving big barrels of cash, right? Nobody's, nobody's moving money, right? What you, what you have are, are just accounting entries. It's just debits and credits. 
Now, the problem with debits and credits is that, you know, I need to actually have a relationship with you already in order to do debits and credits. You know, I need to have, you need to have an account with me or I need to have an account with you in order for us to transfer value to one another. Or we have to have an account with some third party and that third party can facilitate a transfer of value from, from you to me. So, you know, money transfer is just about a series of interlocking balance sheets and then a sequence of debit and credit transactions. And so the, the longer the chain, like the larger the number of balance sheets that you have connecting from the sender to the recipient, the higher the cost, the longer it takes, because a lot of entities use kind of deferred net settlement, the higher the likelihood that there's going to be something that goes wrong. So a lot of the new distributed ledger technologies are designed to abbreviate that chain and to reduce the need to have these interlocking uh, balance sheets. You know, and of course, JP Morgan has their JP Morgan coin. All of these are attempts to reduce the frictions associated with international money transfer. And since there is no Federal Reserve, goes across all these different currency regions, these are real solutions that can make life easier. Now, I should say that there's some misconceptions because when you look at Ripple, you know, Ripple talks a lot about XRP, which is the coin. And the, the idea is that the sender will buy a coin, ship the coin, but the recipient will sell the coin into local currency, and then that coin will just you know, kind of circulate around and back and forth. Well, it turns out most of the transactions that Ripple facilitates are not actually using that coin. Instead, they are simply, it's just a more efficient way of messaging and a, and a more efficient way of connecting these balance sheets with each other. So in that sense, it's kind of less revolutionary than you might think, but it's still adding huge value and it's disintermediating the big players in this space. And so they're not too happy about it because banks make money from having access to better information than anybody else. Information that they had was about two sides of a deal. So if two sides of a deal can meet in the middle without the intermediary, you know, they both benefit and the intermediary suffers. So I think there's, there's some, some big opportunities here. Now, look, it's not going to affect the U.S.-China relationship all that much because governments still regulate currency flows, and that's not going to stop. So if you want to change RNB into anything else, you can't do it without the Chinese government permission. They're standing at the interface of every Chinese bank and the rest of the world. So they can, you know, once things go through the banking system, that's when the regulators can step in. Right now, the most easiest way, if you want to convert RNB to dollars, you don't buy Bitcoin and then convert the Bitcoin to dollars because that's very difficult to do. You buy some mining machines, <laughs> okay, because that's not regulated. Buy some mining machines, uh, some ASICs, and then you convert them into dollars by you know, converting them into Bitcoins and then transfer them abroad. And then boom, you just, you've just converted RNB to dollars. So that's the reason why the vast majority of mining is happening in China is because it's the, the cleanest way to convert RNB to dollars and bypass the whole foreign exchange markets. So it's actually kind of surprising to me that the Chinese government hasn't clamped down on these miners. I think they kind of like the idea that the entire Bitcoin system is controlled by Chinese because they're, they're kind of like, maybe they're just hanging back saying, you know, we could mess up this whole Bitcoin thing if we want to do with just a few phone calls. What's your opinion of the future of Bitcoin? I think Bitcoin's kind of like the, the Netscape of crypto. Netscape was amazing. Like Netscape was revolutionary. Netscape changed the world. but. Who uses Netscape? Nobody. I mean, I think, like, if you're selling angel dust on the internet, you're going you're gonna to want to use some Bitcoin. If you are trying to do some ransomware on some, you know, municipality in Alabama, you know, you're going to use Bitcoin. So Bitcoin will always have a market, no doubt. But some of the more 
practical applications, legal applications of Bitcoin, I'm not so optimistic about. I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful system. It's just a thing of beauty. I mean, it's a work of art. It's like, it's brilliant. Like, I love it. But it's just got way too many problems. Seven transactions a second? Really? I mean, it could serve as a central clearinghouse for all the different exchanges. But at the end of the day, right, if I'm, if I'm trading on an exchange, like, I'm not even using Bitcoin. I mean, I'm just, nothing's on chain. It's all just, you know, it's just a relational database. I'm kind of a Bitcoin pessimist. I could be wrong again, because it is kind of an amazing technology. It's really beautiful. Now you're involved with the FinTech school. What is that and who can benefit from it? Yeah. So the FinTech school is an interesting startup. It's kind of there to fill a need that, you know, a lot of people want to know what's going on in FinTech and there's not a lot of ways to find out about it other than to read blogs, to try and go and find stuff on the internet. And similarly, just like people are craving insight into programming. And so we've seen General Assembly, we've seen Galvanize, we've seen some of these other private companies arise to fill that educational need. The FinTech School is there to kind of help educate people, both ordinary people and and institutions about what's happening in the world of FinTech. I mean, in my view, the idea of a FinTech School should probably be one that's finite because I don't think the term FinTech deserves to last for very long because everything is tech at some point. FinTech will just be finance in a few years. There won't be FinTech, there'll be finance. There won't be MarTech, there'll be marketing. You know, there won't be HR tech, there'll be HR because everything's tech. If you're not tech, you're, you're nothing. You're just selling counterfeit handbags on the sidewalk. But even those guys probably take you know, WeChat, so probably have a good database of buyers. And you know, if they take Square, then they're doing analytics and you know, whatever. So the idea of fintech will, will soon get absorbed into the broader world of finance. And what other information do you think is something that our listeners should know about in this space? I think investors have to, in general, and this is not just fintech, but investors have to kind of change the way they value, value assets. And I still meet people that are valuing new companies the way they value old companies, right? They'll look at a company and they'll say, hey, you know, where's the profit, right? Or where's the margin, et cetera. And you have to look at it. You know, Amazon was losing money for the first, (laughs) for a long time before they started making money. And yet you still find people, you know, doing like multiple analysis and all this stuff. This goes way back. But when I was in teaching finance at Duke 20 years ago, I had a student come to me and say, you know, your class conflicts with the golf class. Corporate finance conflicts with golf. Like, what do I do? I take golf or should I take corporate finance? I was like, well, you want a career in finance? Yeah. Well, take the golf class because that's going to help you a lot more than finance here in like sales and trading, right? So, or even in corporate finance, you know, you got to go out there and golf. Okay. So, so today, if you're interested in finance and you come to me and you say, hey, should I take the finance class or should I take the machine learning class or should I take the finance class or even better yet, the strategy class? I would say take the strategy class. You can't even begin to do like DCF on a company. If, if you don't understand the competitive landscape, you don't understand the technology, if you don't understand the go-to-market, if you don't understand the customers, if you don't understand the substitutes available, the trends, if you don't understand how they're using data, how they're using APIs, you know, how they're leveraging platforms. And that's the raw material for your DCF. It's like being a chef and not, not understanding anything about ingredients. You're not going to get very far. Gregory, this interview has been amazing. Thank you for your time. If anyone wants to get a hold of you or learn more information about you and what you're working on, what is the best way to contact you? Reach out to me on LinkedIn. 
and tell me like, you know, who you are and you know what you're doing and how you found out about me. Great. And, and I also want to thank my at FinTech school who made this introduction that allowed this interview today to happen. We'll have his contact information in the show notes along with the link to FinTech school and Gregory, if it's okay, uh, link to your LinkedIn. Is that okay? Or, yeah. All right. We will get all that taken care of. Once again, Greg, my everyone, thank you for making this episode happen. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Sean. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the siliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is licensed by the Investors Podcast Network. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.